Yeah, and uh, as you're you're turning there, Paul Tripp, uh, in one of his books, tells the story of a birthday party uh, in one of the kindergarten classes that he was uh, teaching. Uh, and uh, the birthday girl's mother had gone to great lengths to to decorate the room, uh, to provide party favors, and and so on. Uh, but but one of the uh, the kids in the kindergarten class, a little boy who was very jealous because the the gifts and all of the attention of the day did not belong to him, uh, he was uh, making a stink of himself, so to speak. Uh, he was rapidly turning into uh, an ob- obnoxious distraction uh, and on the verge of uh, ruining the party. Uh, and, and one of the other moms... Uh, came up to him and uh, knelt down in front of him and, and got kind of right where he would need to make eye contact with her. There's no avoiding her at this point. And she just says, Johnny, this isn't your party. <laughs> in essence, it's not about you. And, and Johnny needed that reminder. And to a certain extent, that's what, exactly what Psalm 2 does to all of us. Uh, It kneels down in front of us. It gets eye contact with us and says, hey, it's not about you. Oftentimes, uh, we have this uh, natural inclination towards self-centeredness, that we think that we are uh, the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. Uh, And this this psalm helps to correct that. It helps to, to reorient our focus and truly begin to understand what the universe exists for, and it's not for us. Psalm 2 appeals to uh, our hearts uh, and our minds. Uh, It calls us to consider the greater picture of history, to see that history is not about us. Contrary to our uh, minute-by-minute opinion during the day, it's not all about us. This psalm moves our, our eyes and our hearts heavenward. Uh, away from ourselves, away from things that are happening here on the earth, and it gets us to see the big picture of all of history. And when this psalm was originally written, it was intended to be a a coronation psalm, something that was going to be read uh, whenever a new king of Judah was crowned in Jerusalem. And whenever a new king in the line of David would have been made king, this psalm would have been read and he would have partaken in part of that reading. But with the passage of time, uh, even the kingdom of Judah fell away from the Lord, as we'll see that the nations rebel against God in this psalm. Even God's people rebelled against him. And so it was initially intended to be read by uh, the coronation of the Davidic kings, eventually became, I guess, the full weight of the meaning was understood by the apostles as after Christ was crucified, they looked back and said, hey, this this psalm uh, speaks not only of the the kings of David, but also the king of David, Jesus Christ, uh, the final Davidic king who will rule and reign forever. And so as we are coming to this psalm, we're kind of first introduced to this concept that's unique to the psalms, that that, that the psalmist, whether it's David or, or another author, at times they will write about their own life experiences. And even though they're writing about their own life experiences, at the same time, they're also writing prophetically about Christ. 
about what he will experience. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, Psalms has more messianic prophecies than any other book in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, this psalm is going to be... Uh, quoted uh, multiple times in the New Testament. And so it's under, it's important to understand that on the one hand we have, this is a, a, a psalm that would be read when a new king would be crowned, and this is a, a psalm that speaks of all of human history. It speaks of, of the Davidic king, the ultimate king. Uh, and as we as we look back at Psalm one last week, we remember that that these first two psalms kind of form the the front page of the the newspaper, the front page of this uh, songbook that the Hebrews had put together. Uh, they are front page news. They are what is most important, and they introduce us to the themes and the ideas uh, that the entire uh, psalm book is going to to repeat over and over again. Uh, and Psalm 1 presents us with two contrasting ways of life. Uh, last week we saw that there was the, the, the way of the righteous contrasted with the way of the wicked. And we saw two different directions uh, that you can take. And we saw two different descriptions of what you will, uh, what will result from those directions. And then ultimately we saw two destinies. Each of those directions leads somewhere. Uh, and at the end of that psalm, as he talks about these these destinies of uh, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That, that, that's speaking of an eternal destiny. And and this question kind of hangs in the air at the end of that psalm of where are you going? What is your destiny? Which group are you in? Are you among the righteous or are you among the wicked? And and again, it's it's not based upon what we do. And as we see uh, here today, it's we're, we're told to seek refuge in someone. Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude. Uh, blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 is going to end with a beatitude. Uh, and so we see these, these two psalms fit together to introduce us to what is most important throughout this song book. And where Psalm 1 asks the question, where are you going? Psalm 2 asks the question, where is history going? Now, where is all of humanity heading towards? Uh, and in short, it is heading towards Jesus. And while no author is mentioned here in Psalm 2, we know that from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 25, Peter and John say that this psalm was written by King David. And in these 12 verses, David is going to unfold all of human history before us. Uh, he's going to lay out this this divine drama uh, of what uh, is going to take place and already has been taking place. And in this divine drama, it's going to divide neatly into four different scenes. Each of them is three verses. It's 12 verses total. Uh, but there's going to be four different scenes uh, in this drama. Scene one, verses one through three, is the raging of the nations. Scene two in verses four through six is the... The rebuke of Yahweh. Scene three, seven through nine is going to be the retaliation of the son. And then the fourth and final scene is going to be the refuge of the wise. And those are, uh, those wordings are not my own. Uh, they, they, they rhyme too well for my, uh, my ability. Uh, those came from a, a pastor named Bruce Ware. And, uh, so I, I took his, his outline, but, uh, the structure and everything else is my own. And uh, as we as we're going to look at these scenes this morning, we're going to see that they they clearly proclaim the message that rebellion against a sovereign God is utterly pointless. It, it's fruitless. You're, you're never going to succeed in rebelling against God. And that salvation refuge is only to be found in Jesus Christ. 
And as as this drama progresses, we begin to understand all of history, and we see that history is is centered upon somebody who's important, somebody who is significant. And again, that someone is not us; it's Jesus. So look with me just at this at this first scene in the drama, verses uh, one through three. Begins by asking a question: Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And and I can I can imagine, you know, if this were a, a, a true drama, a play of a narrator coming on stage, the lights kind of being dim, a spotlight upon him. And he just he asks these questions uh, and the emphasis is, a, is upon that question. Why he's in he's in utter disbelief. And even though that, that question of why only shows up at the, the beginning of verse 1, we could supply it for the first few statements in verses 1 and 2. He's asking, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why are the kings of the earth setting themselves? Uh, and why are the rulers taking counsel together? Why is this happening? Now, it's complete disbelief on the part of the narrator uh, as he is laying out what is taking place. The peoples of the earth are devising plans. They are meditating upon something. They are plotting an empty plot. And in verse 1, we're not initially told what that plot is. We're just said that they're plotting in vain. It's empty. It's pointless. It's a senseless plan, and it is sure to fail. And that, that word for, for plot is the same word, the same Hebrew word, that is also used in Psalm 1, verse 2. But in Psalm 1, verse 2, it's translated as meditates. And so we immediately begin to see a contrast here. The, the righteous person is identified by what he meditates upon, the word of God. We saw that in Psalm 1, but the, the unrighteous, the wicked, those who are plotting and meditating, they're, they're planning something very different. That is what the wicked meditate on, not the word of God, but how they can overthrow God. Uh, in verse 2, we see that the curtain drawn back a little bit further and more details are revealed to us. Not only are the peoples plotting, but they're, the kings and rulers are doing the same. You can say that they are leading this rebellion. They are, they are fanning the flames of, hey, this is what we need to do. They are fomenting discontentment and leading others astray. And they are taking their stand. They are conspiring, that word for counsel, they are conspiring against Yahweh, the Lord, and against his anointed. Uh, that word literally in the Hebrew is the Messiah. So these, these leaders, these people, these kings are putting time, energy, and some serious thought into what we see in verse 3. Of They are planning, to let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They are... They are trying to rebel against God. And suddenly we see why uh, their plan is vain and why their plan is empty. Because how do you how do you rebel against somebody who is all powerful and completely in control, completely sovereign? Well, you can't, but that is their plan. And in verse three, we begin to see uh, that there is an emphasis here. There's an emphasis upon the the inner will, the determination, the heart motivation of these people is is to overthrow God's rule over them. They want to be independent. All men are determined to rebel against God's authority. 
You ever think about that? That, that we naturally desire to remove what, uh, what we perceive as bonds, uh, as, as chains, as slavery and cords that prohibit from us from being a law unto ourselves. That is what we see the people raging against uh, on a regular basis here in this first scene, that the nations uh, feel that God has shackled them because he's, he's over them. He is in authority over them. And, and their plan, their plotting is to, to overthrow God's sovereign rule over them. Uh, and as I mentioned, this, this psalm is, is initially pointing to uh, what would have been a, a hatred for God and a hatred for his people, Israel. A hatred for the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. A hatred for them, but it also again speaks of something uh, greater. If you turn with me over to the right in your Bible to, to Acts chapter 4. As I mentioned, this, this psalm is quoted by the apostles. And they are beginning to understand a greater context of what this psalm is speaking about. If you, you begin with me in Acts chapter 4. Verse 23 says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What's amazing there is the apostles are, are looking to Psalm 2 and saying, wow, this is what was fulfilled in our day. They, they, po- they pointed to, uh, to the Romans. They pointed to uh, the Israelites. They pointed to the nations and said, wow, they have all gathered together and conspired against Jesus to put him to death. And they are taking encouragement from seeing that this was a fruitless endeavor. How do we know it was a fruitless endeavor? They succeeded in murdering Christ, but then what happened? He rose from the grave, conquering death. And what's amazing, I love this passage because they prayed for boldness, and then at the end of the passage, what do they have? Boldness. They, they go out and proclaim uh, the message of Psalm 2, that the, even though the nations rage against God and his anointed, God is the one who will ultimately succeed. They point to that. It gives them boldness in their evangelism to go out and proclaim this message. And they point to to this crucifixion, this murder of Jesus as the pinnacle of mankind's rebellion against their creator. And this has always been seen throughout history. It began in the garden because ultimately what did Adam and Eve do? They said, hey, I want to be a law unto myself. We talked last week, there were competing councils. Uh, Satan came along and gave a word that was different than what God had given to them and they had to make a decision. 
Uh, and then that decision led to them saying, hey, I want to be autonomous. Satan has some good ideas or the serpent has some good ideas about what I should be able to do. So let me question God's word and let me go and pursue my own way. Uh, that was the beginning of mankind's rebellion and it has continued ever since then. In the, the turbulent days of the French Revolution uh, in the late 1700s, a political revolutionary stormed the, the Bastille Fortress in Paris seeking to remove every vestige of law and order from the eyes of his countrymen. He also went to the top of the Cathedral of Notre Dame uh, and knocked over the cross. And the cross fell and shattered there on the ground for everybody to see. And then he turned to the crowd and he said, we are going to pull down all that reminds you of God. And there was a a challenging reply from that crowd that said, Citizen, then you might as well pull down the stars themselves because you can't remove all that reminds us of God. We cannot escape from God, nor can we remove all that points to his existence. Psalm 19.1 states that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1.20 says that his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And what the Apostle Paul unfolds there in Romans is that God's existence is evident. You just look around, and it's obvious that he exists and that we are all accountable to him. I love this quote from from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Nothing is more irrational than irreligion. To, to look around you and say, wow, that there's nothing else to this life. Uh, that there's no God, there's nothing, uh, there's no greater power to which we are accountable. That is irrational. God's authority over his creation is not something that can be broken uh, with ropes, held back with chains, or, or broken by the creation. If we had the wisdom of Solomon, if we had the strength of Samson, we would be fruitless. We would be still be powerless to overthrow God's sovereign authority. And even though many try to, to devise these, these clever ideas about alternate uh, stories or concepts of where existence for humans began, how we, we were created, how we developed... No matter what people say about this, God is still the creator and owner of all things. And we must one day give an account to him. The the attitude that that marked the French Revolution is still alive and well in our society today and has continued and, and all of humanity naturally rebels against God. We naturally buck against his authority. We don't like somebody else telling us what to do. And we have to understand that. We have to come to grips with our natural state, that we want to be gods unto ourselves. That's what is on display here. Man's moral sinfulness is complete. That every person naturally flees from God. But there is no successful rebellion against an all-powerful God. And it's amazing how we want independence and we become blind to who we are fighting for. To, to get that independence. This this scene depicts a battle for an imaginary freedom, this concept of I'm going to be on my own. 
I'm going to be my own person, my own law. One pastor uh, said that, uh, says, what, what suicidal nincompoops to be possessed of such livid rage toward the God who rules. Of really thinking, is this going to be successful? Are you really going to be uh, capable of raging and battling against God and being successful with that? Is that really going to take place? We have to answer that question, but then being confronted this, we have to pause and really think about it. We have to take inventory of our own hearts and see, what is my desire towards God? Do I, how do I, how do I treat, uh, the yoke that he has placed upon me? How do I treat his authority? To quote Charles Spurgeon again, he says, to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? That's what we have to ask. How do we respond to God's authority over us? Is it something that we hate and that we are hostile towards, that we want to throw away from us? Or do we see that the authority that God wields over our life is a blessing? Now, it's not a curse. It's not holding us back. But it is there to support us, to encourage us, to, to do what is best for us. Again, we look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. What was the, what was the picture? That tree who's beside still waters, who has vitality and productivity. Leaf does not wither. Uh, in all that he does, he prospers. That is what the, the righteous is like. Not rebelling against God, but understanding that he is a person, an individual under authority. And this first scene in our drama shows us what we can expect in this life. And in this world, that the, that the nations will rage against God, but then also we have to understand where are we? Are we a part of the, those in rebellion against God or are we those who are in submission to God, coming under his authority? And this infinite and sovereign God takes center stage in the next scene. So scene one, we have the, the earth. We have, the, we have this narrator who's baffled. Why is this taking place? And then we, he, we heard this speech of the rulers, the kings, Saying, hey, let us, let us tear these fetters, let us break these chains and go do our own thing. And as we transition to scene two, we, we move from earth and we go up to heaven. And we go to the throne room of heaven in verse four to see the rebuke of Yahweh. How is he going to respond to these, uh, to these rebels? What is he going to do to them? What's going to take place? Is this rebellion going to be successful? Verse four says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So here we are in in the throne room, and we see that God isn't pacing about. He's not up there wringing his hands and fretting. He's like, okay, what do I do now? No, what's he doing? he's, He's sitting down. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. And it's not a laughter of like, oh, this is just so comical. It's like, okay. This is a scoffing laughter. This is derision. This is, what are they doing? I can't believe this. There's no way they can even reach them. Notice the scene change. Where are the the people rebelling? On earth. But who still remains untouched? God. He still sits in the heavens 
One commentator says that he is enthroned above them in unapproachable majesty and in ever-abiding glory. And no matter how hard they rebel against him, that doesn't change. They're never going to go to heaven and pull him off of his throne and say, now we rule. And so God just, he scoffs at them. He, he laughs. And what's amazing is that they're guaranteed to be unsuccessful. This is like, we can put it in human terms, this is like a gang of two-year-olds trying to take down a giant. Right? It's just going to be unsuccessful. Uh, uh, as a kid growing up, I always loved to, to wrestle with my dad. And he would just destroy me. And every son has this relationship with his dad, right? I've got to wrestle, and one day I'll beat him, maybe, right? Uh, and so I'll never forget when I was a junior in high school, I finally beat him. Uh, and then he didn't want to wrestle anymore. Uh, but uh, that, that was the end. That was the end of those uh, those times. But but I say that in, in contrast, because there's never going to be a time when humanity gets to a certain stage of wisdom or power, and they can overthrow God. That's never going to happen. They, they, they won't reach that point and then they'll be fully in control and able to overthrow their creator. It's never going to happen. That happens in every uh, father-son relationship, but it will never happen with our heavenly father. God understands this, but the kings and rulers, they don't. They're blinded by their sin. Romans 1 says that, that we naturally do what with the truth? We, we suppress it. We, we push the truth down in unrighteousness. We push the truth down, and then we push down the fact that we've pushed it down. So we don't even realize what we're doing. That is what is on display here. And initially, God is sitting in the heavens and laughing, but then there comes an end point to his, his scoffing. And we see that in verse 5. That he is, he is scoffed, he's waited, he's laughed, but then he will speak to them in his wrath. There comes a time where God will begin to act. But notice all that he has to do is speak. He's still sitting, he doesn't even have to get up. And all it takes is an all-powerful God speaking to strike terror into the hearts of mankind. Says that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And when God speaks in verse six, and he finally makes that, that statement, says, Hey, I know all of you are rebelling. I know these kings and rulers have their own ideas and, and they want to be, uh, lords and kings without any authority over them. But what has God already done despite their rebellion? Does I already have my king. He's already been established. It's already taken place. The Hebrew word here shows that this action of, of installation of the king is complete. Even though it, yeah, that's how sure it is, even though it hasn't happened yet. Is Christ ruling and reigning over the earth? No, he's not currently doing that. But... It's a guarantee. And the psalmist speaks of it here as if it's in the past rather than in the future. And we see that that Zion is a, re- is a reference to the city of Jerusalem where they, where the Davidic kings have always ruled. The line of David, his throne has always been in Jerusalem. And God is in essence saying, enough. You can't be kings of yourself because I already have a king for you. 
and this installation of God's king in in the future is the end to any and all rebellion. God is saying, hey, this is the final word. You're rebelling. It, it's, it was funny for a millisecond, but now I'm going to speak to you in wrath and anger, and I'm going to tell you what is going to happen. That I've already established my king. And and as we move into to scene three of this this drama, we're still remain in heaven, and then suddenly we kind of notice another figure on the stage. It's kind of been off to the side. Uh, and we notice him because suddenly he speaks in verses 7 through 9. Uh, and it's uh, the figure who is speaking is the king. The king whom the Lord has installed. He is the one who's now going to speak. And he's going to echo what the Lord God has said to him. This is what he says. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And and in these verses, we're going to see three three things about the, the future king's reign. Number one, we see the legitimacy of it. That this is a legitimate reign. It's not something that he has uh, forced God's hand or conquered. It is something that has been given to him by the decree of the Lord. And that, that term for the decree, it's a, it's a term for a royal law. Something that is unchanging. That once it is established, it cannot be changed or stopped. It is the order of God. We also see that this, this decree uh, is made and the Lord has said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And some people take that little statement of today I have begotten you and they try and say, Well, look, Jesus is a created being. He was begotten. He was made by God the Father. And that, that's not the point here. Just look at the context. What's being spoken of is in inheritance. Now, how does an inherit an inheritance transfer? It goes from who? From father to son. In this context, it's not it's not referring to, to Jesus being a created being, but as the father, he is the one establishing what the son will receive. This is your inheritance. So number one, this is a le- legitimate uh kingship. And also we see the scope of what this inheritance is going to be. Look at verse eight. He says, Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Say, hey, son, just ask and this is what I'll give to you. What's the scope of Jesus' inheritance? All all the nations and and all the ends of the earth, which is a short way of saying everything. That is what is the scope of Jesus' reign. There is no portion of the earth that will not one day belong to Christ. There is no person, no land that will, that Jesus will not reign over. He will be Lord of all. And God the Father gives the earth and its people to his son that he might deal with this rebellion. And he might bring justice to this rebellion. And we see that in verse nine. This is a sobering verse. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That these nations that have been in rebellion, these people who have rebelled against their creator, 
what's promised to them is not victory, but utter defeat. In a battle between clay pots and an iron scepter, who wins? <laughs> right? Uh, it's not going to be much of a, much of a battle. There's going to be a, a shattering taking place. And here we see that, that his royal scepter is that rod of iron. If you'd like to, to turn with me, you can jump over to the, the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19, because Revelation 19 is going to allude to this. Or actually, this is alluding to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 verse 11 speaks of this future judgment of the nations by Jesus Christ. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and is righteous. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So don't ask me. Uh, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. During my youth ministry days, if I had read that, my youth students would have said, look, Jesus had a tattoo. Uh, and I say, look, if you, if you, if you read that and you, and you come away with only that, you're missing the point. The point is not that Jesus had a tattoo or something written on his leg. The point is that he is coming in judgment. That he is coming to judge every person who has rebelled against God the Father. And that's not a, a verse to, to support tattoos. That's a verse that warns us of coming judgment. There will be no recovery from the judgment that Jesus brings. It will be a permanent shattering by the Son an iron rod to clay vessels. And all of this, we can be sure that it will take place because it has been decreed by the Lord. It is a guarantee. We know where history is headed because it has been preordained. And we know that. What did the, the apostles in Acts 4 say? God, all of this has taken place because you have ordained it. This is all a part of your plan. William Randolph Hearst, the, the newspaper tycoon and, and the, the owner of the Hearst Castle there on the, the central California coast, uh, towards the end of his life, he made a strict rule for all of his house guests, and he had many, many house guests. And, and the rule was simple. was that any of his guests or employees and staff were never to mention death in his presence. That, that was the, the decree that he made. It says, don't ever mention it when I'm in the room. So what, what was he afraid of? <laughs> death. But also think about that. that. That decree that he made changed the way everybody spoke around him. 
It altered their life because now they had to be sure that they weren't going to suddenly bring up a topic of somebody who who had died. You know, what I, oh, oh, my, you had a, a pet, and what happened? Oh, you know, it just uh, in those the course of daily conversations, death can come up easy. So everybody who would have come to be a house guest, you hear this rule, and what would you immediately have done? Suddenly, you're kind of walking on eggshells. You're always aware of what the topic of conversation it could lead to because you want to you want to steer clear of that so you don't break this decree of your host in his house his his rule controlled the speech of everyone in his presence and as we read and understand this decree of the lord what god has decreed should now impact how we not only speak but how we live that is what this verse and these verses call us to that that this decree of the Lord should transform our entire lives. That when we know what's taking place, we need to act accordingly. And these verses have have revealed a, a plot twist in our drama. And the plot twist is: we thought history was going one way, right? We thought the, the initial problem in this uh, psalm is that the nations are rebelling, and now what's God going to do? He's got to fix this somehow. But then we've seen this plot twist, and that's really not the problem. The problem is, wow, what are the nations going to do with a holy God who's able to judge them completely and whose judgment is promised utterly? The question has shifted from what will God do with these rebellious people to how can these rebellious people flee from a sovereign God? How can they survive? It's a terrifying question. It's a serious question. And it kind of hangs in the air as we leave uh, the, the heavenly throne room and, and, and we come back to the narrator. And, and the narrator is going to come back onto the scene and he's going to begin to plead with those who have been in rebellion, the peoples, the, the, the kings, the rulers. He's going to plead with them to listen in these final verses. And scene four, the the refuge of the wise. Look with me at verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So counsel is now given to those who had taken counsel to rebel. The narrator comes and says, hey, let me tell you what you really need to think about. And in this, notice that, that the narrator comes back and he gives five instructions to him. Say, here's what you, what you really need to consider after you've been shown all of this. After you've been shown where history is going, here's what you need to think about. And he gives them five commands, five instructions. And, and the first one, he says, be wise. Or more literally, he, he says, hey, show discernment. He says, y'all need to think. I've told you all of this, now you need to consider it. He says, understand your situation, your foolish rebellion, and now be instructed. Allow yourself to be taught. That's what he's saying. Uh, And this Hebrew word relates to the idea of carefully considering, carefully paying attention to somebody. 
It deals with the process of thinking through a complex arrangement of thoughts and resulting in a wise decision. It's a, it's a good use of practical common sense, which common sense really isn't that common. Right? We, we say that. But this is what the, the narrator is pleading with the, the people who have heard this, of, hey, please, be wise. And secondly, he says, be warned. Take warning of what was just spoken in verses 7 through 9, that you're rebelling now, but what will come is a future judgment. Take warning. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And then he says, serve the Lord. Even even though judgment is looming, what do they still have the opportunity to do? Turn away from that judgment. Turn from running away from God and turn to Him. Instead of sinning against Him, go and serve Him. Go and worship Him. That's how it's translated in the NASB. The idea is to, hey, go, go and become a slave. Go become a servant of Yahweh. That is how you can be rescued and saved in this situation. Serve the Lord, says, with fear and rejoice with trembling. The idea of, of fear mixed with joy, holy fear mixed with joy, is how we should always feel when we come to the Lord. Always understanding His judgment, always uh, understanding the, the grace and mercy that He extends to us at the same time. We are to rejoice at the mercy of the God, of God that he is offering to us, and yet at the same time, we can't lose sight of the judgment that is pending upon us if we don't receive his grace and mercy. He's given these first four. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling. And then the first line in verse 12, he says, kiss the son. You're like, what? What is he talking about? The idea is to pay homage to him. Show honor to the king. Such a kiss was an expression of allegiance and submission. And that's the idea being communicated. Kiss the son, pay homage to him. And this was also seen as we read in, in 1 Kings last month. 1 Kings 19.18, when, when Elijah is, uh, is out Mount Sinai, crying out to the Lord, saying, God, I'm the only one. And God's response is this. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The idea of that when you when you kiss somebody, you, you show your allegiance to them. And now the psalmist is saying, Hey, you need to show your allegiance to Jesus Christ, to the Son. There was once an Australian missionary named Richard McClellan who wrote a book about his missionary work in Africa. And it, he wrote a book, and it's entitled Warriors of Ethiopia. And in this book, he tells the story of a witch doctor named Onisa and a slave named Gebre, who arrived at his mission's home, wanting to know that if he, the missionary, Richard McClellan, if he was Jesus... They had, they had heard some, some garbled mix of, of rumor and error and they arrived with their questions at a time when there were these horrific storms coming upon, uh, the part of Ethiopia. Uh, and there was a, a native evangelist, uh, who just happened to also be at the missionary's house at that time. And so for the, the majority of two days and three nights, that missionary and that native evangelist got to share the gospel with these two men, this witch doctor and this slave. 
They were able to explain who Jesus was, where history was going, all of these things. And Onisa and Gebre both believed and came to faith in Christ. And to acknowledge and confess that the faith that they now had, they stood before a small group of believers and they held their right hands high and they renounced Satan, blood sacrifices, evil practices, and their sin. They renounced all of that. And then McClellan reports that they raised both hands high and said, having renounced Satan and believing in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me, I take him as my Savior with two hands. I will never deny him. And in that culture, that idea of taking somebody with two hands, it's the same idea of what we see here with kiss the Son of the idea of, of a cultural way of showing complete surrender and allegiance to somebody. They said, hey, I want to I take Christ with two hands, surrender all to him. That is what the psalmist is calling for here. That is what David is counseling us to do. He says, hey, here is the, the future judgment. Here is the, the coming uh, punishment for your rebellion against God. But now look at the grace and mercy that is extended if you would just honor God's king honor his son. In the last lines of verse 12, David explains why this is so urgent. Why this is, is such a such an urgent matter that it shouldn't be put off. And why the narrator comes and, and speaks to those in rebellion against God, pleads with them. There's three reasons why we should heed these instructions. Number one, it says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. The idea that if, if we don't follow these instructions, if we don't heed those five warnings, those commands, the wrath of God will come upon all of us and that we will perish in the way. We see another connection with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 verse 6 ends, but the way of the wicked will perish. And in essence, all of Psalm 2 is expanding upon that, saying this is why they'll perish. They've been in rebellion against God. God doesn't like that. Here's the judgment to come but there's refuge to be found. So number one, because if they don't follow these instructions, the wrath of God is coming. Number two, because they do not know when God's patience with their rebellion will come to an end. It says, for his wrath is quickly kindled. It could start up like that. How long does it take for a wildfire to begin? Just a matter of minutes, a second. And it's a huge blaze. It's kindled quickly, and that is the way that God's wrath is. We don't know when the Lord will call us home. Anybody know when they're going to pass away and suddenly be ushered into eternity and have to stand before God to give an account? We don't know that. And actually, Jesus himself emphasizes this in Luke 13. People come up to him and they say, hey, what about this? Uh, Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. Reed said, now on the same occasion... There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Jesus is saying, Hey, don't just think that 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 happened as a judgment upon them. They weren't necessarily worse than everybody else. That's not why they died how and when they did. But Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus points to these, to these disasters, these, these heartbreaking tragedies of, man, the, the tower fell on 18 people and they were immediately killed. He says, don't think that happened in judgment. Don't think that happened because they did something wrong. But the, the point that we should take away is, wow, I don't know when I'm going to be ushered into eternity. I don't know when I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account. That's the point Jesus is making. And his remedy is because you don't know when you will have to face God and give an account, what should we do? Repent, turn to him, kiss the son in faith. At the end of verse 12, after saying that, after the warning of lest he be angry and talking about how quickly the wrath of God can be kindled, he gives us hope. We should really consider what has been said because there is blessing and hope for everybody who takes refuge in Jesus. If you seek shelter in your own strength and in your own wisdom, there's no hope. But if you run to Jesus, if you pay homage and honor to him, there will be protection. Taking shelter is, a again, a Hebrew way of saying uh, seeking protection from something or someone. And the idea of seeking shelter in a person demonstrates your loyalty to that person and you having a faith that they can protect you, right? Uh, when, you, when you use something as a shelter, you're trusting that that will protect you from whatever you need shelter from. And in the Psalms, those who take shelter in the Lord are contrasted with the wicked and equated with those who love, fear, and serve the Lord. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at Psalm 5, but Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12 says this, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And then Psalm 34, verses 21 and 22, says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be contemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is why we are called to seek refuge in him. Because in him there is no condemnation. We are completely forgiven. That is where we are to run for refuge. So where do we, where do we go from here? What do we do with all of this? There's, there's some passages in the Bible that you really have to, you, you read and you think about it, and you go back and read it again, you're like, what is this saying? God, what do you want me to do? There's some passages in the Old Testament, some of which we read in Kings, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, but this is not one of those passages. <laughs> this is a passage that's really clear to understand what God wants us to do in response. What is he calling us to do? We are given clear direction of how we are to respond to the truth. First, we're to understand that collectively, humanity, and we all as individuals have rebelled against a holy God. It's the first thing that we have to to grasp and come to grips with. Do I believe that? Do I see that I have rebelled against God? Secondly, do I understand that God is not pleased with my rebellion and that that rebellion is is really not going to succeed? It's impossible. 
Do I understand I have rebelled, that God is not pleased with my rebellion? And then do I understand that his displeasure will culminate in judgment? It will culminate in Psalm 2, verse 9, that shattering of the nations, that judgment of the peoples. This is the divine decree, and it is what is going to take place. But lastly and most importantly, do I understand that there is refuge and forgiveness offered to every single person if we run to Jesus? We can run to him, find shelter in him, find hope, grace, mercy, forgiveness. That is extended to every single person who runs to Jesus and pays homage to him. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, if you've never run to Christ, if you've never paid homage to him and trusted in him as your shelter, some of you may be here and you're still trusting in yourself, still saying, I can, I got this, I can do, I can go my own way. I would, I would plead for you to listen again to those warnings in verses 10 through 12. Be wise, be warned, turn and serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling and kiss the sun. I would encourage you to think about all of those things because as one pastor has said that there is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. There's nowhere you can go to, to escape from his judgment, only to him. He is the one that we are called to run to. And this morning on on the second Sunday of the month, we have the opportunity to pay homage to Jesus, to honor him and remember him for who he is and what he has done. Every second Sunday of the month, what we partake of as a church family is the Lord's table, uh, is communion. And uh, if the men will come forward and begin to to pass out the elements, I want you to continue to listen as, as those elements are being passed out. Partaking of these elements, the bread and the cup, is intended to be something for believers only. Is intended for those who have uh, kissed the Son, paid homage to Him. And it is something that is for believers. Uh, it, it is a celebration and a memorial of all that He has done on our behalf. And so if you are here with us this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, if you hadn't... Uh, Believed in, in him in faith. I would ask that you just let these elements pass by. And as these are being passed out, in, in this psalm, what David looked forward to, that he, what he saw dimly and kind of with, with blurry vision. If you wear glasses, it's like you're taking the glasses off. That's what he saw as he, as he wrote this, what he understood. But what he saw and understood dimly, because it was in the future, we have the, the blessing, the joy, and the privilege of looking at clearly and understanding fully because we're looking pat in the past at what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. Not only do we see that refuge is made possible uh, in Christ, but we see why it's made possible. Uh, that That the refuge is not something that was was free to Jesus. It's freely offered to us, but it cost him dearly. So think about this. The the anointed one of verse 2, the king that God has set in verse 6, and the son of verses 7 and 12. 
not only is safety found in him, not only is refuge found in him, but he is the one who purchased that safety. It cost him his life. He is the one that made refuge possible. The one who's been given the the nations and the ends of the earth. He is the one who has all authority to righteously judge and condemn every sinner. He is the one who willingly gave his life for sinners. The one with the authority to judge said, Hey, I can judge everybody righteously right now. But instead of that, let me go and lay down my life on their behalf. Everybody who surrenders to him, who looks to him in faith, who trusts in him as their refuge will never be shattered at a future judgment because Jesus' body was broken on our behalf. We won't be shattered because he was. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 say this, that surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. It's really easy if we've been walking with the Lord for for a good period of time to come to something like Psalm 2, to see the, the gospel clearly proclaimed, to see this urgent call for everybody to pay homage to Christ. It's really easy to kind of brush that aside and say, well, I've already done that. But again, what we need to do is still found in verse 11, that we need to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. We who have already sought refuge in the Son need to understand how great our refuge is. We need to think about all that we have been saved from and how dearly it cost our Savior to save us. Again, salvation is offered freely to us, but it wasn't free to Jesus. It cost Him everything. He was shattered and broken so that we would never have to be. And as we partake of this bread together this morning, this bread represents his body that was broken on our behalf. And those may those not just be hollow words that we say before we do this, but truly understanding that refuge is made, purchased by his broken body. Let's partake of the bread together. And this cup represents his blood that was shed for us. It paid the penalty for our sins so that when we go into that refuge, we go and we find shelter, not worried about a future penalty, not not worrying about that future debt that we owe to God for our sins, but knowing, trusting, resting that it has been paid in full by Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Let's partake of this cup together. The Messiah, the King, 
the Son of God who will inherit the entire world, humbled himself to the point of death. Death on the cross, the lowest form of death. And he did all of that so that refuge and shelter might be offered to all of us. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you acknowledging that you are God's anointed king, acknowledging that you are the one to whom the ends of the earth, all of the nations has been entrusted to. Judgment is yours. You are holy, righteous. And Lord, we know that you will, in that final hour, judge all things righteously. And Lord, that that does bring trembling to us, an understanding of what our rebellion deserves. Lord, we like sheep have all gone astray and would receive that judgment, but for you, your willing sacrifice on the cross. Lord, may we never become so acquainted with that that we take it for granted. Lord, may we May we constantly rejoice with trembling. May we constantly serve you with fear, with reverential worship, and continue to pay homage to you with our entire lives. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for who you are and the sacrifice you have made on our behalf. Pray that you would help us to go forth and proclaim this message, this gospel, this trajectory of history because we know where it's going, Lord. May we go and proclaim this to the world around us who desperately needs to hear it. May you work in the hearts and minds of all of those in our community and may you give us boldness in the same way that you gave the apostles boldness to go and proclaim this message of safety, refuge, and salvation in Christ alone. Lord, we lift all of these things up to God the Father in your name.